Father, we just, uh, again, we're excited about coming to your word and uh, looking at what you want to teach us today about these two witnesses, Lord. And so as we study the two witnesses here in chapter 11 of Revelation, I ask that you help us to identify uh, who they are, uh, Lord, and also to understand their purpose, and Father, to uh, be able to apply what we learn to our own lives and our mission that you've given us because all of us Lord are called by you and we're protected by you and we're empowered by you to do your will if, if we're your children and so uh, teach us the lessons you would teach us today as, as we look at this fascinating text in chapter 11 Revelation I just ask that uh, you bless our our Bible study you bless our time as we take the Lord's Supper after the Bible study and Lord help us to bless you by our tentativeness and our worship and and uh, just all that we do here today. We just ask for that uh, blessing. We ask it uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation. And we'll be in chapter number 11. Somebody asked me the other day what was the best part of our trip. And I have to say it was the food in Paris. Uh, we... Uh, we had a uh, stopover in Paris, and so we extended that stopover for a couple of days. And I wasn't very impressed with the city of Paris, but I got to tell you, the food is to die for. The night before we left, I went by a little bakery uh, there by our hotel, and I bought what they call a Snickers Eclair. And it is a chocolate cake stuffed with chocolate mousse and then layered with caramel and pecans and then dipped in chocolate. And I'm going to tell you, it was heavenly to enjoy. I bought some extra to share, but I'm sad to say they didn't make it home. So you're not going to get to taste any of those things. And I'm really just kidding about Paris being, Paris wasn't anywhere near the best part of our trip. I, going to Israel was absolutely a, uh, quite a privilege. And uh, as a Bible teacher, to be able to look at that land and and, and see the places where Jesus walked and where the prophets walked and the, all of those places that we read about was such a, was, was such a thrilling experience. We, were, we, we, we drove uh, down through the Jordan Valley. We, we stayed in uh, Capernaum, uh, near Capernaum in Tiberias uh, along the Sea of Galilee and we drove that ride. I'm going to tell you one of the most beautiful rides you could possibly ride on this earth is riding down through the Jordan Valley down to the Dead Sea, and you see that gorgeous Dead Sea, and then you go on down to En Gedi, where David hid out, and, and you see Qumran, and you go on down to Masada, and it's just an absolutely gorgeous drive. Uh, so we got to enjoy that. When we were in the north part of the country, we went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and from Carmel off to the left, you can, you can look down, and I think one of the most beautiful cities in the world is the port city of Haifa. I mean, it is absolutely a gorgeous city, and then you look out in front of you and, and you look a distance away and you see Mount Tabor where Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then you look a little bit to your right and you see Nazareth, well actually a little to your left and you see the city of Nazareth where Jesus was born sitting there on the hill. And then you look to your right and you see Mount Gilboa and, and then down below you look and there's this large valley called the Valley of Armageddon which we're all familiar with which we're going to be studying here shortly in the book of Revelations. And so the view from that mountaintop was absolutely uh, breathtaking. But the most fascinating or most amazing part of our trip was when 
I actually walked into the old city in Jerusalem and we went up to the Temple Mount and there we saw the Western Wall and I was able to walk right down to the Western Wall and touch the Western Wall. And look, you look above and there's on the other side of the wall, up above the wall is the Dome of the Rock and off to the right is the Alaska Mosque. And, and uh, uh, it's the very same area, this courtyard that stands in front of the Western Wall is the very same area where I believe these two witnesses will stand when they come to this earth and they prophesy for 300, and, or actually they'll be on this earth. They might be on this earth right now. And they, prop, they might be walking this earth right now. I don't think there are any of you, but that's a possibility. I've had people tell me they're one of the two witnesses, and I said, oh, yeah, I said, yeah for sure you are. <laughs> now, we're going to try to identify those witnesses today, but, but uh, uh, that very spot is where I believe they're going to stand and prophesy for three and a half years during the Great Tribulation. And i got to tell you, they are two tough dudes. You're going to see that today. You talk about two tough guys. These two witnesses are two tough guys. And so let's, let's begin in chapter number 11 and look down at verse number 1 as John sets this scene uh, in which the, or the place where the two witnesses actually uh, do their prophesying. And look at verse number 1. He says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angels stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple. And do not measure it, for it has been, actually in the Greek it says, for it has been given over to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot during those 42 months. Now that, that tells us a lot right there. First of all, the reason John's given a measuring rod is because God wants John to mark out an exact picture for us of what, this scene is going to look like when these two tough guys do their work during the Great Tribulation. And uh, what they, he sees here, look back at verse number one here, he sees them on the mount, on the, uh, the mount of God, the temple mount, and he sees people worshiping near the altar. And so they're worshiping just outside the temple. Uh, and and uh, uh, in a place, and uh, above that place, you see the place that's given over to the Gentiles. And so what I think John is describing for us here, what he saw here, is the Temple Mount just as it is today. Because the fact that he tells us that an area of the Temple has been given over to the Gentiles tells us at one time that part of the temple was in the hands of the Jews. It was actually part of the temple, but now it's not. It's part of, uh, it's been given over to the, to the Gentiles. And so I have little doubt of what he's showing us here is a picture of the temple mount itself just as it is today. If you were to look at a diagram of the western wall of the temple and you were to superimpose it onto a diagram of Herod's temple, then you would see that basically what you have there is this court that 
faces uh, the, the western wall, the wailing wall, it would be the place of the altar. And then above the western wall is the very spot where the holiest of holies once was on the temple. Now, what sits on that very spot right now? The Dome of the Rock. And then over to the right is the Alaska Mosque. And if you were facing it, you would see to your, to your left, you would see the Dome of the Rock. And to your right, you would see the Alaska Mosque. And John is told to ignore that area because when these witnesses are prophesying, during that time, that area has been given over to the Gentiles, over to the pagans, really, or the heathen, is the, it, you can translate that word. And I believe that's a picture of the Temple Mount today. Now, there's a lot of people that would disagree with that interpretation because there are a lot of expositors who say that the Temple Mount has to be, I mean, I'm sorry, not the Temple Mount, but the Temple has to be built before the Great Tribulation begins. But I don't think that's the picture that we're seeing right here. The word for temple, when you look at the temple in the rest of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, when you're looking at the temple or when you're looking at it in the Septuagint in the Old Testament, the, the word for temple is the word heron, the Greek word heron. And it refers to the whole temple complex. That's not the word that's used right here. The word that's used right here is the Greek word naon, and that refers to the holy part of the temple. Now, i got to tell you, the holiest place on earth to the Jew is what? It's the wailing wall. It's the western wall in Israel. So I can see where God is saying that this is the holy place, and outside the holy place is the altar. And above the holy place is a part of the temple that used to be part of the temple that's been given over to the Gentiles. And that's the Dome of the Rock and that's the Alaska Mosque. And so I think when these witnesses come, they come to the Temple Mount exactly the way it appears today. So if you were to go to the Temple Mount and you were to look at that area, you would see the same thing that they're going to see when they come and they begin to prophesy for 1260 days or three and a half years. Listen to what he says. He says, I will give my power to my witnesses, verse number 2. Did I miss? No, I got verse number 3. I'm sorry. And I will give my power to my witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, or 42 months. We saw, he says, he says, and they will tread the holy city under, in verse number 2, they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And now he says that I will... I will give my power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,262 or 60 days, which is 42 months, which is what? Three and a half years. Now, that's interesting because we've been looking at all of the things that have been going on up until now in the first 10 chapters of Revelation, and it seems that the earth is almost destroyed at this point. See, that's why you got to be real careful with trying to put these things into chronological order. I think that they're going to prophesy during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And I think that's when we see all of these things begin to happen that we've seen in the first part of Revelation and that we'll see in the last part of Revelation. I think the bowls of wrath, the trumpets, uh, the seals, all of those things happen in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And that's why some people hold up to a 
pre-mid-trib, rather, a mid-trib rapture because they believe that we'll see these things happen and then we'll be raptured. Your problem with that is I believe at this point the Antichrist is already on the scene and we know that the church is removed before the Antichrist comes on the scene. So that's why I hold to a pre-trib rapture. But in any case, he says in verse number 3, I will give to my my two witnesses and they will prophesy. I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days. Now, look at their appearance. They're clothed in sackcloth. Now, two weeks ago when I walked down to the Western Wall for the first time, you see these Orthodox Jews, and you've all seen this on television, and they're at the temple wall, and they're going back and forth, and they're praying. But if you back off a little bit into the court, you'll also see Jews who have these Orthodox Jews, and they've grabbed the podium, and they have a table of Hebrew Bibles there, and you can pick up a Hebrew, a Hebrew Bible just like I have in my office at home. And they, you could take a Hebrew Bible, and you can put it on the podium, and you can read out loud. You can do a public reading. And at the time we were there, the first time, there were two or three of these Orthodox Jews doing these public readings. But if you look there, there's a rack of podiums, and there's got to be two or three hundred podiums uh, in that rack. So uh, hypothetically, you could have two or three hundred people prophesying or reading Scripture at the same time. And so uh, uh, anybody who wants to participate, and I could have grabbed a podium and a scripture and read, he, I can't read much Hebrew, but I could have started reading Hebrew scriptures at that point and done just exactly what they were doing. It's open to the public. Here's the problem. Nobody listens to them. They're reading and nobody's listening. But one day, one day on that very spot, these two witnesses are going to appear. And they're not going to be clothed in the Jewish Orthodox clothing. They're going to be clothed in sackcloth. And what does sackcloth represent? It represents repentance and mourning. It represents doom and judgment and all of those kind of things. I mean, sackcloth is a terrible thing. When somebody's wearing sackcloth, it's because they're mourning or they're dreading some coming doom. And these guys are going to come on to the Temple Mount, and I believe they're going to grab up a couple of podiums, and they're going to begin to prophesy. But they're not going to prophesy. I mean, these guys that we saw prophesying or reading the scriptures there at the Temple Mount, they only did it for maybe a few minutes, maybe a half hour, maybe an hour, but that was it, and they went home. But these guys are going to do this for 1,260 straight days for the whole entirety of the first three and a half years of the uh, Great Tribulation. And at first, they're going to come onto that scene and people are going to look at them and they're going to say, man, they're kind of weird. Look at those guys reading scriptures and prophesying it with sackcloth. Or wearing sackcloth. Why, why don't they have on the you know, typical Orthodox Jewish garb? I mean, why are they, why are they dressed like this? And, and, but they're going to take notice. You know, the reason they're going to take notice is one of the reasons they were wearing sackcloth, the other reason is they're not going to stop. They're going to keep right on doing this for 1,260 days. And so people are going to gather. I believe they're going to become like a tourist attraction. I mean, a major, you know, they got all sorts of tourist attractions in Jerusalem, but this is going to be the place to go. You're not going to be able to find a spot to go listen to these guys. Everybody's going to want to see these two guys who have been there maybe 100 days, 200 days or whatever, 300 days. They're going to be there for 1,260 days doing this. And at first, they're going to be a novelty, and everybody's going to think, man, aren't they cool? But then they're going to start listening to their message, and they're not going to like what they have to say 
because they're pronouncing judgment on, the, on Israel and pronouncing judgment on the world, and they're calling for repentance, and people aren't going to like that. So who are these guys? I mean, who, I mean they're tough dudes. You've got to say, they're, they're really tough dudes. You're going to see that in a minute. But who are they? Well, I think we can figure that out, and I think we get our first clue there in verse number 4. Look at verse number 4. He says, these are the two olive trees. He's telling us who they are. And the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, we get a really good clue right there. And I'll tell you where a lot of people take this. They take it the wrong way. They run to Zechariah chapter 4. And those of you who have been in our Wednesday night study, we studied Zechariah chapter 4 recently. And if you remember what happens there, there's this picture of, of Joshua and Zerubbabel as the two lampstands uh, and the two olive trees. And it, it's a picture of, not, of the fact that it's not by our might or, or by our power, but by the power of the Spirit of the Lord that we can do anything. And that's the lesson that's being taught right there. But here's the problem. They're, we're going to get other clues here in a minute. And Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua, did I say Zechariah a while ago? It's Zerubbabel and Joshua are the two, two, two olive trees and two lampstands. They don't fit any of these other clues. So I, I think this is just a paraphrase from there, but it has some more significance that we'll look at in a second. But first of all, I want to answer the question, why two witnesses? I mean, why are there two witnesses? Well, first of all, in, in Jewish law, you can't establish a matter with one witness. You have to have Two witnesses. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. He says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning his iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So God's going to send two witnesses, and he's going he's he's to declare judgment, judgment that's coming because of the iniquity of the people, and it's going to take two witnesses to establish that iniquity. So that's why we have Two witnesses right here. And, and they're, they're, uh, uh, they're coming in at a time when people are really not wanting to hear this. Because the Antichrist has come on the scene. He's taken over the world government. And there's peace on earth. And everybody's allowed to pretty much do what they want to do. They can eat and they can drink and they can be merry. For tomorrow they die. I mean, I mean everything's the way they want it to be. And then along come these two men in sackcloth, and they mess up the whole thing. They start saying, God doesn't like what you're doing, and you're going to be judged for what you're doing. This whole world's going to be judged for what it's doing. And so they pronounce this judgment upon the world, and, and people don't, you know, they don't want to hear that. And, and so uh, who are they? I mean, they're going to face some difficult situation, uh, a very difficult situation, uh, in, the, in the fact that they're going to have lots of adversaries that are going to come against them because they're pronouncing this judgment. Well, who are they? Well, they're two men like Zerubbabel and Joshua in the sense that they're two olive trees and they're two lampstands. The lampstands representing God's light and the olive tree representing oil or the spirit of God. And so they're full of the spirit and they're full of the light of God. And the people are going to be able to see this. They're not going to like that. But they're going to be able to see it. And I, what was that, where was I going to head with this? I believe that Elijah 
is one of these witnesses. And the other is Moses. Uh, and I believe the picture that we're getting right here is a picture of, uh, in this verse, is a picture of these two men standing on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look what he says. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, I've ruled out Zerubbabel and Joshua. I think I've said Zechariah two or three times here, so forgive me for that. But in Zechariah, I've ruled them out because they don't fit any of the other clues that we're going to see here in a minute. But while I'm ruling them out, let me rule out another two pair that people say uh, are the pair who are, represent the two witnesses, and that is Enoch and Elijah. And the reason they see Enoch and Elijah as the pair is because Enoch and Elijah are two men in the Bible who didn't die. They were translated up to heaven before they died, and so they're still in their normal human bodies. Well, that kind of breaks down when you go to the Mount of Transfiguration because you've got Moses there who did die, and he's in a body, and he's in a glorified body, and you've got Elijah who's there with him, and he's in a glorified body too. And so I don't believe they're going to appear in their glorified bodies, but I believe it's, a, it's Moses and Elijah, not Enoch and uh, Elijah, who appear uh, at the Temple Mount and begin to prophesy. Now, the reason I rule out Enoch and Elijah, and again, Elijah is one of them, but the reason I rule out Enoch is that there, he doesn't fit any of the other clues. I mean, he doesn't fit any of the other clues. And, and I think John is given these clues on purpose so that we can figure out exactly who these two witnesses are. And I believe, again, one is Elijah and the other is Moses. And I believe the prophecy that we've been given right here is a prophecy of a picture of them standing on the Mount of Transfiguration with the God of the earth. And who is the God of the earth? He is none other than Jesus Christ. So I think that's, what we, that's the first clue we get. Now the second clue in verse number 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he's going to be killed in this manner. So if you mess with these guys, you're going to die. Uh, at first, as I said, this, they're going to be a novelty. And, and uh, uh, but then they're going to they're going to be preaching this doom, and after a while, people say, we don't want to hear this anymore. Hey, these guys have got a negative message about, they're going to tell the Antichrist, they've got a negative message about you. They've got a negative message about the whole government. They've got a negative message about all the people in this world. We've got to shut them up. And so the Antichrist says, okay, let's send some soldiers over there and pull them, just pull them on out of there. And so they go there to pull them out of there, and fire proceeds from their mouth, and the soldiers are killed. Well, the Antichrist said, well, let's send some more. We go send some more, so they send some more, and more soldiers come, and, and when they get there, fire proceeds out of the mouth, and they're killed too. Does that? But uh, but they, they keep right on preaching. Does that remind you of anybody? You remember in Second Kings chapter one, you remember Ahaziah, the king of Israel. He fell through the lattice work at his palace, and he crushed his body, and he was in critical condition, and so he sent a messenger to the prophets of Baal to find out whether or not he was going to die. Well, Elijah showed up, and he intercepted those messengers, and he said, is there no God in Israel 
that you would inquire about your faith from the prophets of Baal. And uh, uh, then he told the messenger, he said, you go tell Ahaziah he's going to die. He's going to die. Well, Ahaziah didn't like that message. And when he heard that message, he, he asked the guy, he said, who told you this? He said it was a hairy guy with a leather belt around his waist. And he said, that's Elijah. He said, I'm going to get that guy. And so he mounted up, he, he, he ordered 50 soldiers and a, and a captain of those soldiers to go get out Elijah off the mountain and bring him down and he was going to kill him. Well, when he went up there, Elijah said, if I'm a prophet of God, then you're not going to take me. Uh, you're going to die. And sure enough, he spoke and fire came down from heaven and those soldiers died. Well, Ahaziah heard about it. And he got mad, so he, he, he sent 50 more soldiers over there. And those 50 soldiers, uh, Elijah told him the same thing, and, and he said, if I'm a prophet of God, then, then you're going to die. And sure enough, fire came down from heaven, and uh, they died. Well, then Ahaziah sent a third company of soldiers, and they got to Elijah, and the captain got off his horse, and he fell on his knees before Elijah. He said, please, please go with us back uh, to Samaria. Please go back with us to uh, Ahaziah's palace, because if we don't come back with you, he's going to kill us. And if, and, if, and, and if we try to get you to go, you're going to kill us. And so the Lord told Elijah, uh, don't worry about it. I'm going to protect you. And Elijah went with the soldiers. But he didn't change his message. He didn't scare him. He kept right on preaching. And what he preached was, you're going to die. Because you consulted the prophets of Baal instead of consulting the Lord, you're going to die. And that's the picture that we get right here. These soldiers come and they try to take Elijah and Moses off the temple mount. And when they try to take them off the temple mount, then fire proceeds from their mouth and they die. And they keep right on preaching their message. Not only that, look at the next verse. Look at the plagues that they send upon the earth. Look at verse number six. It says, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy." And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, it's no accident here what's happening. These clues are given to us uh, to help us to identify who these two guys are. And you ought to, rec if, you, if you're a Bible student at all, you ought to recognize who they are at this point. Because you remember what James says about Elijah in James chapter 5. He says he was a man with a nature just like ours, but he prayed that it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years. Catch those numbers. Three and a half years, three and a half days, 1,206 days, all of these things. What's that tell us? It's all ordained by God. Everything that's happening here is ordained for, by God. Now, then, he, then look what else they do. They have the power to turn the waters to blood. Does that remind you of anybody? To strike the earth with plagues. That reminds you of Moses in his battle with Pharaoh. Uh, and so it's very clear here to me that this is Moses and Elijah. If it's not Moses and Elijah... And I believe it is them. That's who these two witnesses are. But if it's not them, it's two men who come in the spirit of Moses and Elijah, like John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. Even though John the Baptist isn't Elijah, he came in the spirit of Elijah. That's a possibility. That's the only other possibility I accept because I think these clues, again, are given to us intentionally for us to be able to figure out who they are. Let me add one other clue that uh, he doesn't mention here in Revelation chapter 11. But it, over in Malachi chapter 4, uh, he begins uh, the last section of his book 
by saying, remember the law of Moses. It's almost as if he says, remember Moses. And then in that same context, he says, behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming and terrible day of the Lord. And so I think the clues are pretty pat here that uh, this is none other than Elijah and Moses who stand on the Temple Mount for three and a half years and they uh, give this testimony against the world and against the Antichrist and against his government. Now look at verse number seven. Very important phrase right here. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war. He will attack them. He will make war against them. And watch this. He will overcome them and he will kill them. Now, who is the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit? We talked about that in an earlier chapter. Uh, it could be some demonic general. It could be uh, Satan himself. I think it refers to the Antichrist himself who is possessed by demons, possessed by Satan. And so I believe it's the Antichrist that uh, comes against these two witnesses and he overcomes witnesses. He, he says, I've had enough. He sent all of these soldiers. They've all died, but these guys keep right on prophesying. He says, I've had enough, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. If I've got to nuke the Temple Mount, I'm going, to get, I'm going to shut these two guys up. And at that point, they're finished with their witness, and so he's able to overcome them and kill them. Now, that's what I, I want you to notice again that first phrase. When are they allowed? See, they don't, they don't get to kill these two witnesses until God, I don't care if they tried to nuke them. They weren't going to be able to kill them until God was ready for them to be killed. And he wasn't going to be ready for them to be killed until when? Until they had finished their testimony. So who's in charge of all of this? God's in charge of all of it. They can't, they, 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 nobody can stop them from preaching until God's ready for them to be stopped from preaching. Look, there's a lesson there. That's true for you and I. Whatever witness God has called us to, nobody can stop us from proclaiming the word of God until we're finished proclaiming the word of God. Until your testimony is over, God's going to keep you on this earth. Some of you don't have a testimony. That's shame on you. But, it, but if, if you have a testimony, if you're living for Jesus Christ, you're going to live for Jesus Christ until God's done with you. And nobody, not the Antichrist himself, not, not the federal government, not anybody can stop you from proclaiming Jesus Christ until you've fulfilled your mission. Well, Pastor, I don't have a mission. Well, you need to find your mission. You need to find your mission. Because I've got to tell you something. God has a mission for every person in this room. If you're a born-again believer, God has a mission for you, and you need to find that mission. It might be in your family. It might be in your workplace. But wherever it is, you can proclaim the name of Christ until God's done with you. You want a good life insurance policy? I mean, you want to live longer? Hey, find your mission, and, and, and then you, you, you're under the hedge of, protection of God, and, and you'll finish that mission, and you'll live a long life uh, serving the Lord. All right, now, the Antichrist comes on the scene. These two guys are witnessing, and they've had enough of it, and he comes, I believe he comes himself and makes war against them, and he is able to kill them. Personally, how long is their witness? Three and a half years. When does all this, these terrible things that we've seen with the vials and the trumpets uh, uh, and the seals, when does all that take place? After 
the Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation. When does he commit the abomination of desolation? In the middle of the great tribulation. So see the timing of this, I believe, coincides with the abomination of desolation. So when the, when the Antichrist comes to the temple in the middle of the great tribulation, when he comes to the temple mount, he will commit the abomination. Not only will he kill these two witnesses, he will declare himself to be God. And he will commit the abomination of desolation. And then we see these terrible events that take place uh, in the great tribulation. Now you kind of waffle back and forth on this because we don't know the exact timing. I, I, I personally, if I was to give you my own take on this, I think maybe there's going to be some great war that's going to take place. And we might see some pictures of that and some of the, 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 some of the, some of the seals that are being opened. And that's what's going to usher the Antichrist onto the scene. He's going to become this great world leader. Then there's going to be this peace for three and a half years. And in the middle, and that's when the two prophets are going to prophesy. Then in the middle of that three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to come in. He's going to kill the two prophets. And he's going to commit the abomination of desolation. And then we're going to go into a really, we're not going to be here. But those who are here and you want to be here, that's fine. What the, what you're going to, if you're here, you're going to go through the worst tribulation this world has ever seen. It's going to be some kind of bad. All right. And once he kills them, look what happens in verse number 8. He says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Now, if it, if it didn't tell us to give us the last phrase there, I would say he's probably talking about New York City. Or he's talking about Paris. Or he's talking about some city like that. But he gives us, hey, the clincher here of a clue. He says where our Lord was crucified. Our Lord was crucified where? He was crucified in Jerusalem. Really outside the city gates. So we, again, uh, if you ever get a chance, go. Because we had a chance to see Golgotha. We had a chance to see what they claim is the garden tomb. There's the Holy Sepulchre there down in the old city of David where all the Greek Orthodox and Catholics believe that Jesus was crucified. Uh, he actually was crucified and buried right in that general area where the, where the Via della Rosa is. But, but there's an old bus station outside in the Muslim quarters, very dangerous again, area to go to. But it's in that area by this bus station. That above the bus station, you see Golgotha. And you look at these rocks, and you're looking at them, and you can't really tell what they are, and you can't really see that picture, but, it, but then you take a picture with your camera, and the shadows hit it, and there are this place, you see the skull right there, and it's the place of the skull, and then right in that general area, they have roped off a place, the Christians have bought that area, some evangelical Christians, they have bought that area, purchased that area, and they're holding on to it, and there, there's a place that really looked like it might be the tomb in which Jesus was buried. I don't think it's in the Holy Sepulcher, but, but, you know, it doesn't really matter. I told the crowd Wednesday night, you know, first of all, in Zechariah, Israel is not called the Holy Land. It's called the unholy land. And it is unholy right now. There is no place more holy right now than your heart if you're a born-again believer. Your body is the temple of God. And so, we, you know, you experience Jesus I believe I experienced him more in Lafayette than I did in the Holy Land. Because in the Holy Land, I'm running around looking at all these places. And I'm not attentive to my relationship with the Lord like I am when I'm in Lafayette. That's why somebody stole my wallet in Paris. I got outside the edge of God. But uh, 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 anyway, uh, we know the Lord was crucified in Jerusalem. Exactly where we might not be sure. 
And, and, but look at Jerusalem at this point. It's like Sodom in its decadence. It's like Egypt in its worldliness, in its false religion and all of those kind of things. And you go there now. I, I watched an interview while I was in Israel. It lasted about 30 minutes of Israeli Jews and what they thought about Christ. And don't, don't kid yourself. They don't think much of Christ. They don't think of much of Jesus Christ at all. They don't think much of I mean, you think they would allow one of their holy sites to be turned into a Muslim bus station? You better believe they wouldn't. But, but they don't care about that place because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And so they're like Egypt in that fact. They're like Sodom in their depravity. And it's a pretty depraved place. And so you can see how this, this description fits the city of Jerusalem. Then in verse number 9 it says, Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, all the peoples, all over the earth, all the tribes, all the tongues and nations are going to see their dead bodies. Watch the number again. For how long? For three and a half days. Three and a half years, three and a half days, 1260 days, 42 months. All of these numbers keep coming up over and over again. And the reason they do is to show us that God is in control of this. They're going to be able to display their dead bodies for three and a half days. And they won't allow their bodies to be put into graves. I mean, they would have just been wasting their time to put them in graves anyway because God's going to raise them up out of those graves. But they're not buried. They're left in the street. Now, can you imagine looking at this 500 years ago and you would see that the whole world is going to be able to gaze upon these two witnesses? We take for granted the fact that we have live news feeds from all over the world. And so the whole world is going to be so excited about this event because they've heard these guys prophesying doom and gloom, this coming great tribulation and and calling for repentance, and they don't want to repent. And they've heard all of this, and then now all of a sudden they're dead and everybody's excited. And so they, I can see Joe Scarborough and some of these guys on MSNBC and CNN, those people, I mean, I can see them. I can see them right now, man, just rejoicing. Oh, man, we're so glad those crazy people are gone. I mean, they were, and they take take their God with them, and they're gone, and they're dead, and we're all excited, and it's going to be broadcast. Those dead bodies are going to be broadcast all over the world. Everybody's going to look at those dead bodies. Instead of weeping, they're going to rejoice. Because look at verse number 10. It says, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, and they'll have parties. They'll use it as an occasion. It will be like Christmas to them. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So they're going to celebrate their their death because their message tormented the people of this earth. You know, the day after Billy Graham died, teen Vogue columnist, Lauren Duca tweeted. This is what she tweeted. Have fun in hell, Billy. She said he was nothing more, and I'm going to put this mildly, than a piece of dung. A homophobic. How can you hate somebody? How sick can you be that you hate somebody you've never met? You hate some good man like Billy Graham. How sick can you be? 
Why did she hate Billy Graham so much? She never met Billy Graham. She hated Billy Graham because of Billy Graham's message. His message, let me tell you what, if you've ever listened to Billy Graham's crusade, he preaches a lot of judgment. He preaches the fact that judgment is coming, that the wages of sin is death. And death in hell for eternity. He preaches that. He preached that, rather, when he was alive. But he also preached that the only way to escape that death was through faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. But to some people, to a lot of people, to those people, we're, we see a generation of people like that now. They hate that message. And so they hate the messenger. They hate the truth of this word. They don't want to hear this word. Now you can teach all you want prosperity gospel and things that tickle their ear, but you treat, teach the truth of this world, word and a lot of people are going to hate you. They're going to hate you. And, and, and in this day, I mean, after the rapture, there's going to be a world full of people like Lauren Duca. And th these, prof these two prophets, let me tell you what, they're going to make Billy Graham look like a sissy, like a big sissy. Because when they proclaim their message and you try to stop them, uh, they bring fire against you and they destroy you. They call for the Lord to send drought upon this earth. They call for the Lord to, to turn the water into blood and to, for there to be famines and, and diseases and all sorts of things. And so, you know, you can understand to some degree why the world's going to hate them like, like they've hated nobody else before. And they're going to be cheering in the streets when they're dead. The bars are going to be full. Everybody's going to be having a good time. But they're not going to be dead for long. Look at verse number 11. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. Watch this. And they stood on their feet. I would love to hear what the CNN broadcaster says at that point. And great fear fell on those who saw them. I mean, just imagine, you got these cameras on these two guys and they're projecting images of their dead bodies and the bars are full and everybody's getting drunk and they're celebrating the fact that they're dead. And then all of a sudden, like a slap on the face, these two guys are raised from the dead. He, God brings life to them and they're on their feet and it's party over. Everybody watching that is going to tremble in fear. And listen what else he says in verse number 12. And they heard a loud voice. They're going to hear God speak during the great tribulation. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, not to the pagans. This is to the two prophets. Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them ascending into heaven. All of this transpired right on TV. I mean, God raptures these two witnesses right up to heaven, and it's right there on the TV screen for everybody to see. Can you imagine that? That's really going to happen. And then, watch, look what else God does, just to put his stamp on all of this in verse number 13. He says, in the same hour, at that very same moment, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell to the ground. In the earthquake, 7,000 Look at the number again, 7,000. There's that per perfect number. God's the one who's killing these people. If you don't like it, get mad at God. 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. 
Sounds like a revival, doesn't it? I don't think so. All they did was give testimony to the truth that the Lord, He is God. They've seen it with their own eyes. It doesn't change them for a minute. But they've seen with their own eyes the Lord, He is God. You know, if you will open your eyes right now in your life and you'll look around, God will give you all sorts of evidence that He is the Lord, that He is God. It's what we do with that evidence that matters. I mean, you can believe, the demons believe that the Lord is God. The Lord, the Lord doesn't need our acceptance. He is God. Nothing changes that. But it, sometimes it takes things like this for people to see that. But just seeing it is not enough. You've got to act on what you see. And I don't believe a revival takes place at all right here. It reminds me of when... Elijah was on Carmel, and he fought the prophets of Baal. And he called down fire from heaven, and this altar that was drenched in water was consumed. And remember all the people shouted, The Lord, He is God. And then, just a few hours later, Elijah was running for his life. And where were those people? Where were they to stand up for God? They were, they were nowhere to be found. Because they, they saw what they saw on Mount Carmel, that, the, that Baal's not God. Jehovah is God. But they didn't act on that. If you don't act on it, you, you can see the fact, you can acknowledge the fact that Jesus is God, that, 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 that Jehovah is God all you want. But until you act on that, until you recognize the fact that he is holy and you are not, and that you're a sinner and that you need salvation and that you need to be born again, that you need new life. And you, if you don't act on that, you will never be saved. So there we have it. We'll, we'll stop there for the day. You know, it's just, again, if you get a chance, go over there. But it's absolutely amazing to me that the whole scene is set right now for those two witnesses to come upon the scene. I believe first the church has to be raptured, the Antichrist has to be revealed. Again, I think maybe there might be some great war or something that happens before that. But then they're going to prophesy for two and a half years. Two tough guys. They're, nobody's going to be able to stop them. They're not going to like what they say. But they're going to keep right on going. I mean, they're going to be prophets of doom. I mean, they're going to tell, tell people about Armageddon. They're going to tell people about hell. They're going to tell people about all sorts of things they don't want to hear. Now, where does that leave us? You're not, you and I aren't that tough. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me, right? But I'm not a prophet of doom. That's not our ministry as a church. Our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We're witnesses too, but we're witnesses to the love and to the grace of God. We say to people, hey, except by the grace of God, I'd be just like you. But by his grace, he's changed me. He's changing me into his own image. He's perfected me forever in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to live forever. And that's our witness. And nobody can stop us from witnessing to the, or giving our testimony 
to the goodness of Jesus Christ until we're done, until God's done with us doing that. And so, get ready. I mean, don't watch CNN or I don't think Fox will be here after the, after the I'm joking. They'll probably be just as bad by then. But uh, the time is the time is short. The Lord's coming soon. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. We, we thank you that uh, we haven't quite reached this time when there's, when there's nothing left but to preach doom and gloom and, and Armageddon, Lord, that there's still hope for this world. There's hope for people in this world. You haven't saved everyone you're going to save, Lord. We know that, or you would have already started the process of the end times, of the last days, of the day of the Lord. Father, so give us a clear vision of our calling. Help us to see exactly how you want us to witness. Give us the power. Lord, you, your power is available for us to do things you tell us is, is greater, greater than you did while you were on this earth. Lord, help us to be powerful witnesses of your word. Help us to be powerful, a powerful testimony of your grace. Lord, we just ask you to do that, and we ask you to do it uh, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, because of his shed blood. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.